Tonight on Farage, the big, bullish Boris speech, full of optimism. Is he right to feel that good about the state the country is currently in? The French are threatening to ruin our Christmas and perhaps even cut off the electricity supply to Jersey and maybe even the mainland. Surely they don't really mean it. And on Talking Pines, I'll be joined by Lawrence Fox. Well, boy, it's been party time in Manchester. Goodness gracious me. Friends of mine that were there said night after night, into the small hours, the Tory party were out celebrating in style. Um, And there's Michael Gove dancing again, this time with Tom Tugendhat. And, uh, yeah, Mr Gove, who does seem to really rather enjoy the high life, doesn't he? Um, And this all, of course, a prelude to Boris Johnson himself uh, and Boris uh, coming into the hall today, uh, walking in through the back and shaking the hands of the delegates and, and everybody looking really very jolly, very happy, quite reserved, but then it is the Conservative Party, but definitely an upbeat feeling and an upbeat mood. So, yes, Boris was bullish, boosterish. He was, in fact, very Boris Johnson. It's kind of what he does well. A speech um, full of jokes, whether you like the jokes or not, he was actually making jokes. Uh, He was upbeat. He was really quite patriotic, I thought, in terms of the tone that he struck today. Uh, And I must say, some of the narrative that is coming from the Prime Minister, uh, I thought was remarkable. I mean, to hear, we must end the addiction to cheap imported foreign labour and upskill the British workforce. Wow! I thought this was a UKIP conference circa 2011. So I can't complain about that particular narrative. And yes, he's boasting about wages going up. Wages are rising, workers are doing far better, uh, and it's because of Brexit and because of reduced immigration into the country. Well as the biggest Brexiteer you could ever possibly meet, I wish all of that was true. Yes, of course, uh, there's been less cheap foreign labour flooding into the country, particularly during the pandemic, and yes, that's helped. But do I really believe that this Prime Minister is going to reduce net migration to the United Kingdom over the course of the next few years? No, I don't for one moment. And in fact, the truth of it is, all through his career, Boris Johnson has been very relaxed about immigration numbers and even, when he was Mayor of London, suggested a mass amnesty for all those that had come into the country illegally. But maybe we can forgive him, uh, feeling happy. It was, of course, the Conservatives' first conference since they won the election back in December 2019. But when it comes to the economics of the situation we're in, frankly, I thought much of what Boris Johnson said today was bordering on the delusional. He didn't even once, in the entirety of his speech, mention the I-word, inflation. Inflation, that disease of money that is now back in the system. And as history teaches us, once it's there, it's not that easy to get rid of. And that's the real reason that wages are going up. It's the reason we've got shortages. There is more money in the system chasing the same amount of goods. We have rocketing commodity prices and natural gas today hitting yet another high 
for this year. The oil price, $80 plus. We have rocketing commodity prices. We have wage inflation. And it's astonishing in a way to hear a Conservative Prime Minister praising wage inflation when it's the very thing uh, that helped to bring down the Conservative government back in the 1970s and caused them so much pain in the early part of the 1980s. So nothing about inflation, but even more extraordinarily, when it comes to the cost of living, because it's all well and good, your pay packet going up, but if your outgoings go up by a faster rate than that, you're not better off, you're worse off. And indeed, a think tank today has produced some numbers suggesting that the average family of four is going to be nearly £2,000 a year worse off just due to the cost of inflation and household bills. And that's before the tax increases kick in in a few months' time. Now, Boris Johnson made this incredible pledge. He said, we are going to cut the cost of living. But doing that in an inflationary environment is pretty much impossible. And doing that when you've committed the country to ending all fossil fuel use in the generation of electricity by 30, 2035 is completely and utterly impossible. So in conclusion from this week at Manchester, yes, it was a good performance by the Prime Minister, and it's nice to see some optimism, I agree. But I think the partying and the optimism um, of the conference of the Prime Minister today is out of touch with where millions of people in this country are. There's so much in this country that frankly isn't working uh, that I think Boris Johnson's optimism has been wide of the mark. So please let me know what you think about that view. How did you view Boris Johnson's speech today? Let me know. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Let's have a look the Prime Minister speaking in Manchester at lunchtime today. We have unemployment two million lower than forecast. We have demand surging. And I'm pleased to say that after years of stagnation, more than a decade, wages are going up faster than before the pandemic began. And that matters deeply because we are embarking now on a change of direction that has been long overdue in the UK economy. We're not going back to the same old broken model with low wages, low growth, low skills and low productivity, all of it enabled and, in, and assisted by uncontrolled immigration. And the answer to the present stresses and strains, which are mainly a function of growth and economic revival, is not to reach for that same old lever of uncontrolled immigration, to keep wages low. The answer is to control immigration to allow people of talent to come to this country, but not to use immigration as an excuse for failure to invest in people, in skills, and in the equipment, the facilities, the machinery. Or in the machinery, the facilities they need, they need to do their jobs. The truck stops, the truck stops, to pick an, an example entirely at random with basic facilities where you don't have to urinate in the bushes. And that is the direction in which this country is going now, towards a high-wage, high-skill, high-productivity, and yes, thereby, a low-tax economy. That, that is what the people of this country need and deserve. 
Well, he had some front there, didn't he? A low tax economy after they've just put taxes up and they can't guarantee they won't put them up again before the next general election. Well, maybe I'm being too sceptical, too cynical about the economic state we're in. Uh, let's find out. I'm joined now by our economics editor, Liam Halligan. Liam, good evening. I know you've been up in Manchester uh, watching much of this over the last few days. I mean, if you listen to the Prime Minister, the economy is in just the most fantastic shape. Wages rising, productivity rising. I mean, it was almost, we've never had it so good. What say you? <laughs> yeah, almost Macmillan. Uh, it reminded me a little bit more of Heath, actually. Um, I'm like you, Nigel, I think. I'm generally an optimistic person. I'm generally a big believer in the entrepreneurial vim and vigour of this country. But the reality is, if you look at the official GDP numbers, the economy has stalled. And the economy has stalled because of supply chain issues, which aren't just uh, about what's happening in the UK. They're about what's happening across the world. But because the economy has stalled, we have got a lot of inflation. I think that this was a, a speech full of jokes, full of theatrics, full of a feel-good factor for the party faithful, luxuriating in the fact that despite the pandemic, the Tories are largely ahead in the polls. But I think outside, not just at those down-at-heel towns and in provincial cities that have been in that uh, phrase often used by uh, the Prime Minister left behind. But I think across the country as a whole, there's a lot of apprehension about our economic future. There's a lot of apprehension about the winter of discontent we face with rising energy costs, with skills shortages, with trade union uh, unrest, not so much blue-collar trade unions, more the white-collar trade unions, the public sector trade unions. And I think Boris's tone during the speech was pretty remote from how most people in the country are feeling. He barely mentioned the fact that we're out of the pandemic. He barely mentioned the fact that he, as a Conservative, has had to impose so many controls and removals of freedom. Uh, I think he should have said something about that. But I felt economically he was out of touch, as if he doesn't really understand the sort of moment of economic peril which we face. Well, Liam, that begs a question. You know, we know he's good at classics and many, and he's a very, very good writer and he can be a very entertaining speaker. And we know all of those abilities and talents that he's got. There's no question about any of that. Does he yeah. understand economics? Well, I worry that he hasn't really got anyone around him in his inner circle who really does get economics or is even interested in the economy. Of course, Rishi Sunak is very influential and I thought Sunak's speech was largely about laying out who Rishi Sunak is as a person. It's the first uh, speech he's ever given as Chancellor uh, to Conservative conference. Uh, but Rishi Sunak's speech was a bit more forward-looking. The payoff of the Sunak speech was finally, finally, we can turn a corner now and look to the future. But I thought the Johnson speech didn't really address any of the concerns within the economy. It didn't address the fuel crisis at all. It's as if all the Conservatives there were oblivious to that. It didn't address the fact, Nigel, that on the day he gave the speech, oil went above $80 a barrel and the money markets now are looking at not 4% inflation, not 5%, inflation, 6% inflation in the UK. That's what the weight of money in the markets yeah. is suggesting. People who predict these things for a, few, for, for a living and put their money 
where their mouth is. I think this autumn, um, but certainly by the end of the winter and into the spring, we are facing interest rate rises. Sterling is slipping, which means imports are becoming more expensive. That produces inflation in and of itself. And, you know, it is the economy stupid, as Bill Clinton's economic advisor, James Carville, said all those years ago. When the economy turns, political fortunes can turn, and prime ministers who tell lots of jokes can start looking really, really out of touch. And none of this gives me any pleasure. I want to be upbeat about the economy. I spend a lot of my life analysing the British economy. There are many good things going on, but there are some serious warning signs. And the public's picking that up, and he should have reflected that. And, Liam, if we have inflation and we have little growth, uh, that's something... Uh, the, well, it's a word that's not been used, I don't think, for 35, 40 years, but it's called stagflation, isn't it? Well, some of us have been using it for six months or so, Nigel. Um, You're, so far ahead of the pack, Liam. Com- You're so far it's, ahead it's, of the pack. You're the first one, in <laughs> fact, to have predicted a winter of discontent. But just, just in 30 seconds, tell the audience what stagflation actually is. So stagfla- stagflation is the combination of economic slowdown or stagnation, so that's very low growth or even economic contraction, and inflation. Ordinarily, you have inflation when the economy is going bank gangbusters, when the economy is running hot. Sometimes you can have inflation when the economy is also very, very underwhelming and underperforming. We had it in the 70s, early 70s. We had it in the early 80s. It absolutely convulses politics. It means all normal politics is off the table, and that could well happen in the coming months. Liam, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That was Liam Halligan very much taking my view that Boris was, in economic terms, wildly over-optimistic. And the funny thing, you know, think of the great dramas we've had in politics in Britain over the last seven or eight years. Brexit, the attempt to stop Brexit, in the end getting Brexit, all of these things. All these big changes happened during relatively benign economic circumstances, but I do think we're heading into some very choppy water. So... On the economics, he was ridiculously over-optimistic. But on the politics of it, and I'm joined by Darren McCaffrey, back from Manchester. It's a great train service, isn't it? Uh, no. No? <laughs> well, it's a great train service. You can get a seat. Ah. Uh, the problem was that the train was very, very busy. Um, and as always, these things, they should put on more carriages, knowing that lots yeah. of people will be travelling between London yeah. and Manchester today. Really interesting on the politics, though. But oh, right. I've got to say, actually... I think the economic optimism is ridiculous and hopelessly out of touch with where we are. But on the, politis, on the politics of it, and I know the imagery is not very good, you know, with welfare cuts today and Michael Gove dancing and Therese Coffey doing the karaoke, and, and, and those optics are strange. But I kind of get the celebration because politically he's actually got every reason to be optimistic about the position of the Conservatives, hasn't he? I mean, you, you look at every single ping, opinion poll almost this year, even during the most difficult times of this pandemic, even when, frankly, all of us knew that the government were making mistakes and the government subsequently have admitted themselves that they made mistakes, yeah. you know, that level of public support was still maintained there. And there is also a sense, I think, particularly that there's a loyalty almost to Boris Johnson as a politician, aside from the Conservative Party, which means that the party actually has had this unassailable lead for quite a long time. And one of the other reasons is because of the politics. And the politics was set out very clearly today. And it is, I think, where we saw it in 2019, which is kind of winning, hoovering up 
lots of those kind of disaffected former Labour voters who've turned to the Conservative Party, where economically you're actually somewhat slightly on the left, mm. talking about you know, tax increases to fund the National Health Service, mm. something a service that many, many people rely on and care about, while at the same time actually being... Uh, on the right when it comes to cultural issues. Oh, and law and order. Uh, and law and order. I mean, not that he'll deliver any of it, but, but on law and order, yeah. he sounded very conservative today. Yeah, didn't indeed, and, and so trying to, do, combining those two together, essentially he's got the centre ground covered. He has got, you know, his tanks and Labour's lawn to a large degree, mm. and he's maintaining the base of support for the Conservative Party that it's needed. And, and that actually has proven thus far to be a winning formula. It's kind of really spelled out today, and I think we've got a, a clip, actually, of the juxtaposition yeah. between both of these. Let's have a watch. We have one of the most imbalanced societies and lopsided economies of all the richer countries. It's not just that there's a gap between London and the southeast and the rest of the country. There are aching gaps within the regions themselves. What monkey glands are they applying in Ribble Valley? What royal jelly are they eating that they live seven years longer than the people of Blackpool, only 33 miles away? Why does half of York's population boast a degree and only a quarter of Doncaster's? That is not just a question of social justice. It is an appalling waste of potential. And it is holding this country back. <laughs> Leveling up works for the whole country. And it is the right and responsible policy. Because it helps to take the pressure off parts of the overheating southeast while simultaneously offering hope and opportunity to those areas that have felt left behind. But as time has gone by, it's become clear to me that this isn't just a joke. They really do want to rewrite our national story, starring, uh, starting with, uh, with Hereward the Woke. Uh, we, we, really are, we, we really are at risk of a kind of know-nothing, cancel culture uh, iconoclasm. And so we conservatives will defend our history and cultural inheritance. So they go, uh, Boris Johnson touching on that. Now, we've, we've talked about you've talked about that. You know, it was a good speech. He's very good at doing them. It was undeniably funny, much shorter than Keir Starmer's speech uh, last yeah. week, but done for a very long uh, period of time. And, you know, we have remarked today there's no policy in it at all. Uh, there was one thing. There was one announcement about... Um, um, giving for, for teachers, teachers incentives yeah. to move. Yeah, yeah. I think a £3,000 bursary to move yeah. to kind of more deprived schools in maths and science, I think. Um, but aside from that, nothing. And, uh, you know, as you guys have been talking about, you, you and Liam about kind of slightly detached from what may be happening in the real world. But then we come from a position of what we expect these conference speeches to be. And often also a conference speech is just a bit of red meat and a bit of kind of triumph and boosterism for the membership and indeed for people who might be conservatives around the country. And on that measurement, he certainly did deliver. And as I say, he wasn't short of jokes either. I think we'd have a watch. We finally sent that corduroyed communist cosmonaut <laughs> into orbit where he belongs. I say there are confounded nuisance who are blocking ambulances, stopping people going about their daily lives. And I'm glad... And I'm glad Pretty is taking new powers, taking new powers to insulate them snugly in prison where they belong. So we sent top government representatives to our sweatiest boîte de nuit to show that anyone could dance perfectly safely. And wasn't he brilliant, my friends? Let's hear it. Let's hear it for John Bon Jovi. I, I, I think
think it's fair to say... Uh, that was quite funny. It was very, <laughs> it was very funny. I'm, 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 and the dancing was certainly funny. And Michael Gove <laughs> does seem to be enjoying his newly refined single life to a large degree yes. uh, in, in nightclubs up and down the country. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's levelling up in one way, isn't he? Uh, from, from Aberdeen to Manchester. Um, so I, I think at the end of what? Two big party conferences. The first time we've had party conferences, obviously, since the yes. pandemic. In the end, you know, I think Boris Johnson would be pretty will probably be the chippier, chirpier of the two leaders, I think. In saying that, you know, Keir Starmer, I think this was a really important conference in that he, he managed to, to change some really important rules within the Labour Party. He kind of saw off the last pay, pay, pangs of pain from the, yeah. from the Corbyn left. Um, but at the same time, you just still get this impression that if Boris Johnson was to lose the next election, it would be very much because the government have lost it rather than because the opposition yeah, have won it. I agree. Well, Darren, I want to say it's been a great two weeks, busy two weeks mm. for you and the team, uh, and I felt the fledgling GB News began to fly in the last couple of weeks. Great outside broadcasts. No technical difficulties. Indeed. Compared to Facebook, it went down for six hours the other day. <laughs> so, listen, well done you, and I think you really put the station on the map at those party conferences in a very, very remarkable way. Well done. So, relations between France and the United Kingdom are deteriorating rapidly. Let's have a look at today's front pages. Yes, they weren't focusing just on the Tory conference. French threat to sink Xmas. Yes, it won't just be turkeys we're short of. They'll stop all the goods coming in from France. And my son says, oh, well, he, they've got Macron dressed up as Napoleon, which, which is always fun. And not tonight, Beau Josephine. Uh, yeah, a classic, funny, sun front page. But actually, behind it all, it's all pretty serious. The French furious that the Australians have chosen our 21st century nuclear submarine technology over their mid-20th century diesel. Uh, the French, uh, with the EU, not prepared to budge an inch when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is effectively annexed a part of the United Kingdom and is quite disgraceful. But it's fishing that's really, really triggered this one. And despite the fact, you know, well over 90% of French boats that have applied to fish somewhere in British territorial waters have been approved because a few dozen smaller boats who had no historic record of fishing close to the British coast have been refused. They're now threatening. And it's not just to destroy Christmas, it's to cut the electricity supply. Jersey, dependent upon French electricity. And almost unbelievably, not discussed by Boris in the speech today, we also import up to 10% of our electricity. So there is, and I've been saying this here on GB News for weeks, there is a major confrontation coming. And it appears to be getting pretty close. Odd, isn't it? that the Prime Minister didn't even mention France in his speech. My question is, would the French really cut off the electricity supply and destroy our Christmas, given how much they benefited? I mean, ever since we, they, ever since we joined the common market, they've had oodles of our fish, our taxes have paid for much of the French countryside. Would they really cut off the electricity supply? Well, I'm joined now by Paris-based journalist Peter Allen, and I, I think, fair to say, Peter, a veteran correspondent on these issues and these matters. Now, I do understand there's an election coming up and Macron wants to win re-election. I completely understand that and I get that. But would he really 
cut off the electricity to Jersey over a fishing dispute? I personally don't think he would, Nigel. It was his Europe minister, Clement Bone, who uh, erred that um, this thought, as it were, he didn't say it directly. He said that uh, Britain has gone too far in not uh, giving out these uh, licenses to French fishermen and that uh, France had to take very, very tough measures. And by the by, um, uh, France uh, provides uh, electricity by undersea cables to Jersey and Guernsey. So it was a kind of veiled threat. You might remember, Nigel, this threat was actually made back in May as well yep. uh, by another government minister. Nothing happened. They, they, they didn't actually cut it off. I, I would be absolutely amazed, especially heading out of, uh, towards autumn, winter. Uh, remember, that would be cutting off electricity for schools, hospitals, etc., etc. I'd be absolutely amazed. I think this is, this is uh, knockabout uh, rhetoric, actually. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say that. But what is very real is the government's desperate need to get the Northern Ireland Protocol renegotiated. And Macron, who is very much now the senior, you know, with Merkel, with Merkel gone, or effectively gone, Macron now very much the senior figure within the European Union, not prepared to give, you know, a centimetre um, of ground. And Boris Johnson could trigger Article 16 um, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, could that lead to perhaps the threat of British goods being blocked at French ports? Certainly, that could easily happen. Uh, the point is, uh, we're dealing with a French president who's always made his, his hand, uh, showed his hand. He detests Brexit. He detests everything about Brexit. Um, he said uh, that in no uncertain terms, before he was elected, after he was elected, yeah. and all these, um, all these, uh, all these arguments, uh, all part. Uh, all coming from that fundamental position of Emmanuel Macron. As you state, Nigel, he's somebody who wants to effectively replace Angela Merkel as, yes. the, uh, as the main leader uh, within uh, Europe, take charge of the European project and take it forward without Britain. Uh, Brit the fact he's lost Britain is, is terrible for him. He's an Anglophile, there's no doubt about it. Uh, that's the, the irony. He's always loved uh, Britain. He used to take his holidays there. He speaks English perfectly. Yeah. And he has great links uh, with Britain. But he's, he was mortified by Brexit. And uh, that is what you have to consider when you look at all these, the, 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 these events, Nigel. No, well, I'm pleased personally he's mortified by Brexit. But there we are. But something else that's going on, Peter, please inform our audience. A new phenomenon in French politics. A man who was a TV presenter... Um, on a, quite a new TV station a few months ago. Uh, and I saw some polling uh, in France today that, to su that suggested this man, Eric Zemmour, uh, is suddenly becoming the main challenger to Macron. This is an extraordinary development, but I would say not a surprising development. A lot of people would have said it was uh, absolutely extraordinary when both Le Pen's... Uh, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen originally, and then uh, his, his, his daughter Maureen, uh, challenged uh, for the presidency. presidency. Both were, were runners-up. They did it. And now you have uh, the kind of person who's pretty popular in France at the moment. I would describe Eric Zemmour as a pop philosopher. They like their philosophers over here in France. They always have done. They like the intellectual basis um, to political argument. 
And he's somebody who is on French TV morning, noon and night. Mm. He's had plenty of bans. And I must say he's been in trouble with the courts for some pretty uh, grotesque claims, actually, Nigel, uh, predominantly about Islam. Um, and uh, that kind of provocation has appealed to uh, certain uh, members of the French public. Uh, a lot of people think uh, the next uh, presidential election will be decided on the far right. That's uh, the voter base that even Emmanuel Macron is, is going for now. And uh, Eric Zemmour is all part of that. But I must say, as so often happens uh, with sides of French politics, he's doing a lot to spit the far right vote. He's going to pull a lot of votes, obviously, away from Marine Le Pen. Mm. And uh, that would suggest, actually, that he hasn't got really much of a chance against uh, Emmanuel Macron. And indeed, uh, the weakening of the um, uh, Le Pen vote will probably open the door to uh, Emmanuel Macron. So that's probably how it's all going to end. Yeah, I suspect you're right. But who knows? This is France we're talking about and politically a much more volatile country than the United Kingdom. Peter, thank you for joining us tonight. And I do agree with that. I don't think the French will cut off the electricity, but it just shows you the kind of tactics they'll use to defend their fishing fleets. What a pity. British governments haven't done more over the years to defend ours. In a moment, we'll discuss real tensions now between Taiwan and China. Worrying, I would suggest. Your comments on today's events coming in. Laura on email says, when Macron switches off the electric supply to Britain, that will be the end of Boris and the Tories. He won't be able to talk his way out of that crisis. Well, that's if Macron does it. I still don't think he will. John says, it's about time the country has some optimism after what we've gone through. Great speech. I understand that. I, I completely understand that, and I agree with that, and I understand why the Tories are partying, locked down, they've not been together since 2019. It just, it's the economics of it. Uh, I, I just don't think he really understands the problems we're facing this winter, or indeed for many people right now. In fact, for lots tomorrow, uh, when they'll see their benefits cut. Eve says the Prime Minister is taking orders from someone else. His speech had nothing to do with the British people. Well, as a team of people that negotiated it, I'm sure. Roy on email says, Johnson's speech was a breath of fresh air. I'm so fed up with negative predictions. Yes, optimism and boosterism is great, but they have to actually be right as well. And sometimes you have to level with people that in economic terms we are facing some really big challenges. Anyway, so... The situation with Taiwan and China has been difficult for decades. But many of us think that the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the announcement by Joe Biden that America simply wouldn't choose to get involved in global affairs anymore, uh, has perhaps been taken as an opportunity by the communist Chinese regime, who have flown dozens of their jets over Taiwanese airspace in the course of the last four to five days. America has an agreement with Taiwan and she says she'll provide Taiwan with the means to defend itself. But one wonders after Afghanistan, one wonders actually after Joe Biden's speech saying America was withdrawing from pretty much everything, one wonders whether that still holds. And you can see the pictures here that have been put out by Chinese state media of their operations over the last couple of days. How serious is this threat? Is it imminent or is it something we need to face and think about in the years down the line. Well, I'm joined now 
by Austin Williams, academic and author on China. Um, Austin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's one of those stories, isn't it, that, that, that you know, with a strong American president, uh, we wouldn't even be considering this too much. But post-Afghanistan, I would have thought, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I would have thought people living on Taiwan were feeling a lot more nervous than before. Well, undoubtedly. I mean, obviously, they've seen what's happened in Hong Kong, uh, and that's kind of sparked a certain kind of uh, worry, because it seems as if the world has let Hong Kong uh, happen, uh, democracy be subsumed in that uh, in that region. And uh, Taiwan uh, has always been seen with um, international experts as being a kind of a flashpoint, that were Taiwan to be invaded by China, then it would take on a much bigger global perspective. The, the, the thing is, I mean, there's two things to say, just to correct what you said at the very beginning. In terms of uh, China flying over over Taiwanese airspace. They haven't really flown over Taiwanese airspace at all. They've, they've flown over the air recognition area, which is a much bigger area. Okay. I mean, it's still significant, yes, uh, but they do it all the time. So there's been more flights now than there were um, a year ago. Um, secondly, it's, it's National Day. It's National Day in China and in Taiwan, the, you know, the founding of the Republic. Therefore, there are these uh, every year, there's a, a, a you know, flexing of muscles uh, going on. So there's a little bit of you know, slightly over overkill on what's actually happening. And, and in some ways, I would suggest that there's it's been overinflated by some of the Western press. I'm not suggesting you're doing this at all. As a matter of fact, I think GB News is actually putting a nice corrective in some of this conversation. But obviously, you know, you have French diplomats in Taiwan at the moment. You've got a German and American and Australian and New Zealand warships in the region. In some ways, Taiwan has been discovered by the West as this kind of vulnerable country as a way of really flagging up China as a, as a, as a major threat, which obviously is, is, it is anyway. But it's almost like it's funny that so suddenly the West is concerned about Taiwan. It hasn't actually been for 40 years. So there's, there's something strange going on here beyond the, the, the China-Taiwan relationship, I think. OK, so your, really, your message really is don't panic. This is the situation that exists between Taiwan and, and the mainland and is unlikely to change in the foreseeable future. I think, I mean, when it comes to China, uh, you can't really tell what's going to happen the following day, and you can't really tell uh, on the basis of what they tell you. Um, however, I think this has been around for a long time. Taiwan is right to be uh, kind of afraid because China has always claimed Taiwan, and, and Xi Jinping has said he will be taking it back. But it's, you know, it's maybe on a 10, uh, 20 year timescale. Um, I think that Taiwan, on the other hand, is actually, you know, doing that thing which a small country might do in the circumstances, which is to fly flag up its vulnerability in order to um, require and request and in some ways demand yes. uh, Western interest yes. and help. So I think that there's an exacerbation of underlying tensions into something which is much bigger than what it should be. And it's a quite a dangerous situation because of that. We'll keep watching and thank you for that great analysis. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Nigel. Bye-bye. So normally, Prime Minister's husbands Prime Minister's wives, yes, of course, they attend party conference and they're photographed at party conference, but they don't get involved actively in politics. But it's different this time, isn't it? Yep, it's different with Carrie Johnson. And there she is last night speaking at an event, an LGBT event, co-sponsored by Stonewall, who themselves have been pretty controversial, to say the least, over the course of the last few months, and Boris Johnson himself was sort of there in the back of the room watching his wife speaking, um, and she is taking an overtly political role. And I could see her influence. 
I could see her influence in Boris Johnson's speech today. Rewilding was being talked about. Bringing back beavers was being talked about. Um, and this is all the Carrie Johnson, uh, the Goldsmith family agenda. The Richmond Green Party, as I call them. It doesn't make them bad people, but they have their own ideas on what we should be doing with large parts of the British countryside, which, in the case of rewilding, um, is to stop food production and just let it grow wild. Uh, it may be successful, it may not be successful. I don't know. But we have a very, very political wife in Carrie Johnson. I don't know. Is it appropriate that she goes and speaks at the Conservative Party conference? Maybe next year she'll be on the main stage. Either way, whatever your view, don't underestimate her importance. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by somebody who once was a famous actor and now is a political party leader. Yes, I'm joined in the GB News pub for Talking Pints by Lawrence Fox. GB News Pub is now open. The first drinks have been served, and I'm joined on Talking Pints by Lawrence Fox. Lawrence, cheers. <laughs> Very good to see you. You too. Here. I was thinking about you, in the sense that you come from this acting dynasty. Extraordinary number of members of your family have been very, very successful actors. And you go into it with that name, and everyone knows who you are, and is that a burden? Does it make it more difficult to make your own mark? Or does it somehow make it easier? Well, it was weird, because um, when I was at drama school, there was a, a guy called Nick Kempsey. Sorry, Nick, I just mentioned you. But anyway, he was a Bricky's <laughs> son from Liverpool. And he was like, good on you, mate. I love it, no problem. And then there was a middle-class girl from Putney who would go, you're only here because of your father. And I was like... They're the, ones, they're the ones that still hate you. Yeah, still <laughs> so I was like, I've got more in common with, with Nick Kempsey from Liverpool than I do with um, dear Annabelle from Putney. And you had a successful career. You were famous, of course. You know, you did year after year after year, didn't you, in, in Lewis, which was massively successful and big audiences. And, and was that fun to do? was great, because I also... Kev Waitley is proper old lefty. Yeah, I know he is. We used to, like, Barney all day <laughs> about everything. But it was permissible yeah. in the day. We were allowed to argue, and, and we, everyone argued about everything, and it was great. And then it suddenly just went... <laughs> in show business. And it was like, no, no, there's one narrative, and you must subscribe to that narrative. And I just... I got to the point where I thought, I'm going to cancel myself, actually. I'm done with this. When do you... I mean, when did all this start, in your view? Uh, when did the... When did the whole cancelling stuff really start to have an impact? I, I think I first noticed it in a friend who came out of Oxford in about 2010. Mm -hmm. And she had some very, very pronounced views on Israel and Palestine. And, you know, I wasn't... I'm not particularly clued up on Israel and Palestine, other than to say it's not really my area, I'm not a foreign policy yeah. expert, but she was like, this is horrendous and you've got to get on my side. And I was like, no, I don't. I would like to make my own view. And then slowly you would go into showbiz and you'd be sat there with them. Um, actually, my final job, I was hired and I was hired in the room and then they said, um, 
they didn't give me the contract for two weeks and they said, well, there's a diversity problem. So I was then, I had to wait. And then they said, we're going to have to hire an actor of colour to play opposite you. So you saw all of this coming into your acting profession? Yeah, and, it, and, and then what happens is that because you sort of, uh, the grievance culture was so dreadful that um, she came up to me on the first day and she said, the only reason I've got this job is because of you. And I was like, well, that's not a good way to start, is it? You know, we, we, we're dealing with immutability, and it's really, it was really just sort of dreadful. What do you that... miss most about acting? I mean, what was, it, what was your favourite? I mean, obviously, Lewis is the thing that you're most famous for, but what did you really enjoy most in acting? Gin and tonics on the roof once you finished. It's <laughs> a very good answer. Do you know what I mean? It's a very good answer. It's better because then everyone lets go and they talk. But, you know, even, even the stressed out people would talk and have fun. But, you know, after doing difficult scenes and things like that, it's always nice to come together and have dinner. And that, those were the fun times. I never enjoyed standing on set with some method actor who was going, just don't talk to me. I've got to prepare for my character. And I'm like, well, we've all got to be here watching you prepare for your character. Thanks very much. <laughs> I bet you would difficult to work with. Well, no, it was really easy to work oh, with. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> what are we doing? Are you happy? Let's get on with it. So you see in your professional career what's happening socially as the sort of culture wars, if we can call them that, start to kick off. And you're right. I mean, before 2010, I mean, there was political correctness and there was... And, and words changed, words being acceptable one year and not the next, but kind of that wasn't brand new. That's been happening probably 40 years. you know a long long time but it's a heck of a big change isn't it oh yeah <laughs> from appearing in lewis oh, no. and you walk down the street and people say, oh my god that's lawrence fox and can we get a selfie and can we have an autograph and everyone likes you because there's no reason not to like you because they don't you know you're the character and 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 and, and now you're leading a political party and we'll come on to that yeah and the journey um do you regret what you've done? No. I, I, I don't, because I look at TV and I look at, I, I look at films. My kids often like, can we watch this film? And they'll show me it and I'll go, I can't bear this. This is a moral lecture. It feels like a moral lecture, a lot of television. So I started showing them films that I love, like The Naked Gun and Naked Gun 22 and a half or 33 and a third or whatever. And then we're belly laughing as a family. So it's, it's modern drama is much more a moral lecture or, or a mm. posturing mm. of grievance culture, which is, I don't want to, I don't want to go, I'm the token white guy and you're the token black guy and this is about the Black Panthers. But I you don't... talk so much about this and I, and I remember your Question Time performance um, back in early 2020, sort of just before the pandemic really kicked off and Meghan Markle was the centre of debate and you know you had a furious row I, I was watching it it was great fun I mean I've appeared many times it wasn't wrong it. either but I was no I was enjoying it you know but you've made such a stand against black line I've done the same you've made such a stand against black lives matter and what they truly stand for and the real intentions of this I mean you go from being a popular actor to somebody that now openly gets called racist how do you deal with that well, I think it's OK, people calling people racist. Well, it's OK being racist or being called racist. Well, no, I mean, you... How long, how long, no, no, have, you, I've been, how long have you spent being the pariah of the whole oh, world? Oh, oh. 25 years. Oh, You're all right yeah. as a result of it. But I was, ne I was never popular before. Well, <laughs> well, I'm not sure how popular I was before. But I, I have children, you know, and I have, out of... There's nine nephews and nieces in my family. And and an all of them are mixed race except my two kids. By accident, yeah. I happen to have two very blonde 
kids and I don't want them being told that they're not allowed to have an opinion based on the colour of their skin or some immutable characteristic they have because one of my sons has special needs, so does he not get an opinion because of, you know, I don't believe in that. And You I, get called these names? I get, yeah, I mean, you know... Lawrence, I mean, let's be fair, you know, you do... I would suggest you have a little bit of a Twitter problem that one or two late-night tweets have not been... Elephant poking. Exactly what we would expect from the leader of Reclaim, a wow. political party in the United Kingdom. Do you have a problem with Twitter? Uh, I think everyone has a problem with Twitter. I think Twitter's dreadful. It's a sewer and it's also so addictive and it makes you think in 240 characters and actually long thinking is much more important. But what I do with Twitter is I make... I, my massive failure is that I assume people get what I'm about to say. Ah. So if I say something, I don't preface it. I just go blush and I'll say it. And, um, you know... But you have deleted a few. I always... I, I had, until my... Um, until recently, I had tweet delete on for every two weeks. But now I've thought, no, I don't care. You can see whatever I say. It doesn't bother me. All right. Well, I'm just suggesting to you that maybe, as a party political leader, some of those... Speak late to my dad, my brother, my sister, yeah, my girlfriend. Yeah. Some of those late-night tweets. Well, there's a friend of mine over in America that used to send out all sorts of tweets 24 hours a day, and he kind of finished he up... He was in, rather good. He finished up in quite a good position with... Well, Paul. except that he was thrown off Twitter. Well, this is horrifying, isn't it? The fact that... It, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the fact that the, 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 the Taliban leadership are on Twitter... Which is great. It's and, inclusive. They're very inclusive, the you know, Taliban. The, and the 45th president of the USA is not... is mm. simply shocking. Lockdown. You've taken a very, very robust anti-lockdown stance uh, for libertarian reasons, and I understand that, and I get that. I've been astonished at the extent to which the British public have just got along with all of this. I, I, I've been amazed. It's a very different country to the one I thought it really was. But what about vaccines, uh, Lawrence? I mean, I, it does seem to me that the evidence around vaccines is that, yeah, there are side effects for some people, of course, there are, as, there are with, as there are with MMR or, or whatever it may be. But the evidence looks pretty strong to me that those that have the vaccine, if they catch the virus, which they still can, are much less likely to get seriously ill or die. And you've been pretty strongly against having the vaccine yourself. Does it worry you that you as a role model to people out there are perhaps discouraging them from doing something that could really, really be good for them and, and maybe even save them? Well, I'm not, I'm not at all anti-vaccine. <laughs> no, you, know, you haven't had it yourself. What, what one, one presents the anti-vaccine goes, oh, you're anti-vaccine. I'm more, let's not mandate what happens okay. to an individual in their personal choices. Now, I can see how easy it is for people to conflate those two problems, but it's a mistake. My position is, my medical history is none of your business, in the same way as your McDonald's consumption is none of my business. You know, because you can go, well, why, why don't we go, uh, let's mandate being thin. Let's stop fat people from being fat. Let's stop smokers from smoking. Let's stop drinkers from drinking. Where, where does it stop? Well, we'd be finished. You know, and, and, and suddenly from the, from the hard left, you get, you get this my body, my choice over abortions, mm. but my body, mm. not my choice over vaccines. So for me, it's not about a vaccine. It's never been about right. vaccines. OK, well, I, I thought I'd put that to you. Perhaps I was being a bit unfair, but, but yeah. I, you know, I get the position and you made it very clear. Mm. Lawrence, you're leading a political party. I, I, I don't think anyone knows how difficult it is. You do? Well, yeah, because it took me a... Long time. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to do. Do you think that Reclaim and, and, and the campaigns that you fight, and you fight them with great ardour, great passion, and I, you know, we've been at dinners when you've spoken, and I, and I, I watch what you do, 
and I agree with a lot of what you have to say, and I genuinely do. Do you think in a sense that Reclaim may call itself a political party, but it's more like a pressure group, really? I, I, I've started to feel recently that um, we, d we are in a post-political era, in a way, because you've got Boris sat there today going, we've got uh, children getting medals for everything, and it's great. But at the same time, he won't answer whether a woman has a cervix or not. So, you're so you've got a political party. He's a massively inconsistent human being, morally inconsistent human being, which I find repellent, and I don't trust him. And then you've got Keir Starmer, who's just in the wrong job, but mm. they're also saying the same thing. Mm. So I do think there is a, a place for, for a valid reasoned and logical-based opposition. It's just very difficult to herd cats, as you know. I'm sure you've, you've been through it. So, you know, Richard, I'm so yeah. happy to see Richard Tice doing so well. But at the same time, I'm like, Richard, this is, none of this is going to make any difference at all to the electorate unless you, me, all of the smaller parties that have very strong voting bases yep. get together and provide a valid right. opposition. That's my view. There you are. This man is going to attempt to reshape the entirety of British politics. That was Lawrence Fox on Talking Pints. We're nearly out of time, but I've got a couple of barrages, the farages that have come in that I'm going to read out and answer, having not seen them first. Gary says, if could be a contestant on a reality show, which one would it be? For me, oh, Strictly Come Drinking, no question about that at all. Uh, Philip, no doubt that'd get me in trouble, but hey, like you, I don't care, really. Philippa on email asks, if you could implement three government policies immediately, what would they be? Uh, tell people the truth about the economic situation that we're in. We've borrowed vast amounts of money. We haven't got much growth. We've got inflation. Tell them the truth. Take back control of our borders. That's what people voted for in Brexit, and they're just not doing it. Those two are very good signs. Number three, uh, keep working, working, working with over 50 countries in the Commonwealth, out there around this world. They're our real friends, and the closer our relationships with them, uh, the better we're going to be, and the stronger global influence we're going to have. And... Finally, David on email asks, is there anybody out there who would make you think that's the next Prime Minister? Not really is the answer to that, I'm sorry to say. I wish there was. Has the UK got a housing shortage or is it just overpopulated? Well, work it out yourself. We've got to build a new house every four minutes just to cope with current levels of migration.